I'm Howard Hecht, he's Fred McClymonds, and you are listening to The Coil. On today's Coil, it's all about trust. No, Fred, not the fifth album by Elvis Costello, the fourth one with the attractions, but the real deal, the sine qua non of all things digital is trust. Well, that's what I think, Fred. And what I want to know is, do you think that we have successfully transitioned trust in, as you like to call it, the analog, I like to say, real world, to the digital world? Do we have trust, Fred? Howard, we have not even begun to scratch the surface. We don't have the same analog trust and digital trust elements. We simply don't. And and that's a, a very important point right now because if you think about it, trust in the analog world, as I like to call it, not the real world, but the analog world, because of the digital world, because the digital world is real. Or is it? it <laughs> trust doesn't necessarily translate one-to-one. Um, you know, if you think about it, I think it's very important for us to understand why we trust people. And, and one of the things that we look for when we establish trust is something called trust points, things that we can use as a reliable marker to identify uh, you know, whether or not we trust a person uh, or whether we trust a, a business or an entity. So it's important to look for those you know, elements, uh, those points, and then look for similar mechanisms online, uh, not the same. And, and I'll give you an example of why they don't translate one to one. If you think about from a functional perspective, what happens when you meet someone? You have certain things that you look for to establish uh, whether or not you're going to trust that person. There's the look in the eye, um, there's the handshake, there's the tone of their voice, the facial expressions. Um, those are all things that we've acquired over a million years. Now, in the digital world, do we have those same expressions? Do we have the look in the eye, you know, et cetera? We don't. What we do have is we have a similar niche function that takes place. That is, when you meet someone online, you look for elements that are going to allow you to trust the person, but they're different, fundamentally different. You know, Fred, I'm not sure, because I, I don't know that we really even have trust. I mean, let's face it. I think in some cases we've actually taken and done a trans trust or trans trust substantiation, as I like to call it, where we've actually imbued trust into the online or digital world that doesn't even belong there just because it's a suspension of disbelief and not actually the development or careful cultivation of trust points. Well, you know, that's a great point because we don't necessarily, when we talk about trust in the digital world, we don't necessarily understand what that really means. And some of that is because we're so new in the digital world and people have this uh, this you know ability to establish whether or not they trust or anticipate that something is going to work the way they expect it to work. So at a website level, for example, if a website functions the way you anticipate it's going to function, there's a certain level of trust that comes into play there. And in many cases, that masks the fact that we really don't know who's behind the website. So I think what we see now is you know people establishing false trust. They think they're trusting a system, but what they're really trusting is the way it behaves, uh, you know, because of a, a programming or a, because of a, <laughs> they're trusting the way it behaves because of the way it's been programmed. We also tend to look at people that way. We, we're only seeing little snippets of them online, what they tweet, what they post on Facebook. So it's very easy for us to anticipate what they're going to do next. And we confuse that with trust. But realistically, some elements of trust do convey from the analog to the digital. 
And in fact, if I know you, as I have, I've known you for years, when I see you online in the digital world, I have a, a basis, I have a foundation upon you know, which to you know, assess your online activities. That helps me establish trust. You know, that's a way, you know, if I know you, it's a shortcut to that trust you know, relationship being built. However, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to behave as you digitally. So you may have you know, one personality in the analog space and one personality in the digital space. You may end up to the point where I trust you for certain things in the analog and other things in the digital, or maybe not at all in the digital. And that's a huge issue for businesses and, and even brands and personalities today because if you have an expectation that's built up in the analog and you don't live up to that in the digital, you're screwed. Well, I found, and I like the way you said there was a, the thing you said is the application of, of trust, but also the anticipation. And one of the things that I've noted is that, you know, we talked about how the system is programmed, but it's also how the people are programmed. Because let's face it, Fred, how many times lately have you gotten into a discussion with someone and realized that they're reciting the bullet points from some article that you read in a, in a better or worse or a lesser journal, and they're just basically reciting them back? Um, I, I've been to a few Howard, social. That has yeah. that has happened since the beginning of mm, you know the problem beginning is, of voice. No, the, no, the, the Fred. They, everyone grunts. reads every no, Fred. Everyone reads everything. You know, in the first five minutes of the day on LinkedIn, this is my five minute grasp. No, no, of no, no that's different. That's that's different. Going back throughout history, we have always we learn from others. I mean, very little of, of what we we think is actually truly you know natively new. Well, we're speak, learning speak from others. Yourself, so, like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you may have incredibly unique ideas, but they're all based on information that you're pulling in from other people or from other sources. So it's not unexpected, you know, for you to go back to what you've learned or what you've seen or what you've heard. Now, what you're talking about here, though, is something different, and that's the mass media pushing out information that all of a sudden we lose the the diversity of information. Yeah, I'm talking Techno about diversity, I'm talking literary about diversity. Yeah. No, 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 no. It's it's a limited amount of information that a large number of people look at. So instead of everybody having a different newspaper that they're reading, they're all reading the same newspaper, mm. and they're all behaving the same way mm. as a result of that because those same five bullet points are what everybody just saw. All right. Well, we're going to have to uh, trust Fred and trust myself about this homogenized goodness. And now what we're going to do is we're going to bring on someone that hopefully both Fred and I trust. Dr. Jeremy Pitt of Imperial College London to talk to us about trustworthiness as the linchpin for social capital after this. Jeremy, from everything we've been discussing to this point, it would seem as though trustworthiness was the linchpin to social capital. Am I correct in that assumption? Uh, that that's correct. It's um, trustworthiness. Um, uh, what you get uh, from your position within and standing within an organisation, from um, your experience, from your uh, past history, um, uh, uh, is an is an attribute of, of people, not a uh, a, a possession, but but a, a quality, a property. Yeah? And um, one of the things that uh, the Nobel laureate, uh, who was much concerned with these problems, uh, Eleanor Ostrom, who sadly passed away in, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, is that uh, she observed that um, trust uh, is the link that enables you to bind these different forms of social capital that I've been talking about 
to uh, successful collective action. And the end result of processes like McKinseyization and commercialization and commodification of social relationships is to, it's a kind of social acetate because it completely uh, destroys that trust, uh, which is the link between these forms of social capital and successful collective action. So, so how will we conf effectively confer trust upon those who deserve it, and conversely withhold it from those who don't? How do we how do we build this trust this trust rating uh, uh, mechanism? <laughs> uh, I, I think we have to uh, to to go back and uh, reinvent all these forms of social capital. So, so one of them that uh, uh, I've been uh, advocating uh, in 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 place of trustworthiness. Uh, is a notion of design contractualism. So what I mean by that is is that um, is the idea that designers of software systems uh, make legal or social and ethical or moral judgments, and then seek to code those precisely in the system. Now, some of these legal moral judgments, for example, are relate to um, uh, privacy or privacy, if you prefer. Uh, and it's uh, up to uh, us as designers of um, social networking applications, socio-technical systems, to make these judgments about privacy and encode them in the, in the very systems themselves so that uh, people using these systems uh, can, can rely on the fact that um, uh, their privacy will be respected, their data won't be scraped and aggregated, uh, that they they will be the beneficiaries of providing the data, and so on. So, Jeremy, if we look at uh, at this trustworthiness or just the general trust issue uh, online in the social space, you know we're at a, a very interesting time right now because our brains have been wired to identify trust points in an individual or in a, an organization in the analog world and. Very often, what I'm seeing is that the the trust points that we would normally look to, uh, you know, to to validate or verify somebody, and then ultimately be able to confer social capital on them, they don't translate well into the digital space. This is a, I think it's an increasing problem for both, uh, you know, individuals, but also for marketers, people that are trying to um, to sell or promote their their brand or their product uh, online here. And, you know, unfortunately, in social networks, things move so fast that it's very easy for trust to be given and, and take away, almost a mob uh, mentality there of that. So I I'm curious how you, how you see a, a path for us to potentially translate offline trust into digital online trust and, you know, perhaps uh, address some of the issues of the, the mob or the antisocial behavior that we mm -hmm. see taking place online. <clears throat> oh, thank you. This is a very uh, interesting question, of course, and it's um, uh, not just uh, myself that is going to solve this. Uh, but you can uh, see, I could uh, point to an organization in Boston called uh, ID Cubed, who are trying to develop uh, a, a platform which is currently called Open Mustard Seed. Uh, um, uh, as a new and innovative platform for developing precisely this kind of application. And what they refer to is um, a social stack. Uh, and this social stack uh, has many different uh, dimensions. 
Uh, one um, uh, is is about the core identity, the persona of the individual online, uh, and how that is represented. Uh, another layer of this social stack is is to is the relationship uh, between that and um, uh, value in the form of some kind of uh, digital currency, shall we say? Uh, and yet another uh, layer of this stack uh, is to do with uh, the governance models uh, that are, um, are being used to organise and regulate the application. And some of these governance models, of course, um, completely reflect things like uh, 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 empowerment of the individual and the ability of those individuals to choose the rules by which the um, the application or the organization is governed. And these are related, actually, I've mentioned it before, to some of uh, Eleanor Ostrom's principles of um, self-governing institutions. You said how we develop trust points. You know, we're taught to develop trust points. And I thought about that, and I think, well, we of our generation were certainly done that because let's face it um as a child you were introduced to the little lord of the Flies style pack that you you know that you ran with because they were the the only other children in proximity to where you could be and you'd play with them and it was quite organically uh, developed because the, those who were there that's who you had you you had to develop trust points you had to develop ways of interworking children today are are do not develop that way they're in um, hygienically created play groups, which are are heavily orchestrated. All of their time is is heavily scheduled or scheduled and orchestrated with your you know with their peer groups by their parents, um, by their schools. It's a very different way of growing up. So consequently, I don't think they develop the same sense in the you know in the offline world. And I'm wondering, do they have you know what's their frame of reference? Because they don't seem to be as adept at avoiding it in the online world, as you'd hope for people that were literally born online. You know, Howard, uh, I think that just speaks, though, to the uh, uh, to the problem. You know, go back to uh, when you were a child growing up. You had uh, a certain element of, of stability um, simply by the fact that society was not moving as fast. Technology was not moving as fast as it is today. Now, you know, we're in a situation today where there are a lot of kids, but I'm not sure that it's every kid out there that is is being placed into a a rigidly structured uh, you know performance oriented program. Uh, I think there are still you know elements of that traditional style out there. But the bigger uh, issue at play here is that things are changing incredibly rapidly. Um, so maybe they're a bit off their game because we've tried to regiment things a bit too much. At least you know we see that in uh, in our culture here uh in the US but even within the US it, it differs you know by by geography by region by socioeconomic factors um but now take that into the online space uh, i know you know my kids they have uh you know they have the i guess the the benefit uh, of being alive at a point where technology is evolving incredibly fast so there are a lot of things they can take advantage of but at the same time they're almost constantly off their game. You know, every time something new happens socially online or technically that impacts the online world, the trust points that they established a month before, you know, a week before, maybe even a day before, they change. You know, there's, you know, some change to the algorithm of Facebook. There's something that happens in terms of the content that's accessible, um, you know, from, you know, a laptop now accessible on a, uh, on a mobile device, not always the same content. 
not always from the same sources. So I, I think there's a disruption of that trust point issue there. It's difficult to say, here are the things you need to look at online, and here are the things that you need to feel comfortable with in order to trust the data or the person on the other end of that. So, Jeremy, any any difference in, in how that's <clears throat> transpired in the UK? or? No, I think that's uh, that's uh, absolutely correct. Uh, I think we uh, uh, culturally have tended to um, overestimate dangers in the real world uh, so that we change the nature of parenting so we closet them up. Uh, we then put them into what we think is a nice hermeneutically sealed environment uh, and let them go online and they encounter just the same amount of uh, uh, issues there, uh, but if anything, I think it's Fred entirely right. It's a, it's a completely moving target. However, what does uh, I got two experiences here. One, of course, is just how quickly they they can make up uh, their own uh, regulations. So there's something innate uh, about the way that they will uh, 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 create what isn't isn't acceptable. Uh, behavior amongst themselves so that we sort of know about this this self-organization but another one I, I will if I can just throw in my own from my daughter the hardest question that I was ever asked by uh, one of my children I mean because you know how they ask you all sorts of things about how things work and stuff like that and if you don't know the answer you can always make up some story about the pixies or the fairies or something like that you know? and um when it's about five or six, my younger daughter asked me, uh, does the internet know who I am? Uh, and this was the one question that she asked me, which completely stumped me. Uh, it was just so wrong on the, so many different levels. Uh, and yet, you know, right to the heart of the, uh, of the actual matter. Um, <clears throat> and I think, you know, this is, this is something that we have to sort of um, address. And I think, you know, frankly, one of the ways of, of guessing at that is, is that those of us building the tools that these people are going to use should take responsibility for the actions that we're doing. And this is what I mean by design contractualism. Oh, responsibility. That's, that's tough. We're, we're not that mm. big. We're, not, we're very big fans of responsibility. It's, that's, that's an <laughs> SCP. Uh, well, the, the 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 hard thing for me, of course, is you know I think I was Fred entirely right about creating these uh, these trust points and how fast they move, uh, but you know trying to find a balance between uh, innovation and entrepreneurialism, um, and um, uh, uh, you know acting in this quotes responsible unquotes way uh, remains also a, a, a cultural challenge. Uh, I mean, when I talk to my students at, uh, at Imperial, they, they tend not to same, share the same fears as me. Partly, I think, because they've um, grown up in this world, but partly, of course, because um, you know, they think they're going to be the next Zuckerberg. <laughs> it's going to be them that's... Uh, um, well, in, yes. in, in, a in a financial sense. I, mean, I think it was Andy Warhol <laughs> who said, you know, in the future, everyone will be Zuckerberg for 15 minutes. <laughs> that's correct, yes. And yes. if he didn't, I'm attributing it to him. Welcome to our Turntable segment, the time in our program where we turn the mic over to our guest, Dr. Jeremy Pitt, so he can ask Fred and I one big question. Jeremy, 
The mic is yours. Um, okay, thank you very much, Howard. So, so as a, a naive observer uh, of uh, U.S. politics, uh, what I observe uh, is this fragmentation, or rather polarization, it appears, uh, of, uh, of opinion, uh, in a way that is leading to uh, absolute deadlock. Uh, so my question for you uh, <clears throat> is, is essentially this. Uh, are the structures that were put in place by the founding fathers uh, appropriate for the 21st century when uh, immediate critical action is required to address pressing global problems, which at one time would have most benefited from uh, American innovation in solving? Well, Howard, I'm going to hand that to you since you're Canadian. <laughs> I am not Canadian. I was born and raised in the U.S. of A. I just live in Canada. You know, I, I think the, the challenge to that question is that it's always in the... It, it's not so much the institutional um, challenge to, you know, to the to the precepts of, of government that were set up, because I, I actually do believe that they were quite forward-thinking and quite strong. I think the challenge has been actually in some of the application of uh, of media and marketing that have, have really messed with the electorate. Um, and I know you could say that's a, a systemic issue, but I think it's also been um, the challenge of the the grand deregulatory scheme that that's that's gone on since uh, 1980, I would argue. Uh, I would I would argue that a lot of the institutions of government in the U.S. were made far less effective since then, and consequently, what's happened is um, in opening up such a how do I put that delicately such an unfettered environment for capital exploitation that you took all of the best and brightest minds and had them not go into government. So you, you tend to have a, a, a far less um, educated and a far less uh, aware of, contemporary, of, of, of actual contemporary issues group of individuals in the legislative branches. And um, the judicial branches have become stacked to manifest a lot of these you know, what are essentially corporate issues. So what's happened is I think that the the application of some of these things, and also, again, it's it's this core, this core belief in an absolute deregulation. And in fact, unfortunately, I'd say probably the diminishment of government as an institution that has that has caused this. Is there a systemic in a way, is there something that can be done constitutionally? Something that can be done to that to to affect the, that change? Uh, you know, you know. This is aside from arguing about specific specific rules and regulations, like of course the Second Amendment, which you know we could spend seven or eight shows doing. But I think the challenge that that you have is uh, is in some way empowering the belief of of the of the the intelligent people to go back into government and basically uh, again in my opinion trying to get people to recognize such things as the regeneration of social capital for the common good i mean i think it all comes down to you know 
one one of my favorite aspects is it says for the common good right in you know right in the constitution it says it there it says it in bold letters unambiguous letters and i always find it hard to believe that people will argue against things that are absolutely for the common good uh and just you know purely for individual benefit so i don't know if that answered your question but it certainly got a lot of emotion out of me <laughs> it, it uh it, it did to some extent yes so thank you jeremy i believe that uh the, the basis, the, the core of the, uh, of the Constitution uh, in the U.S., uh, I believe that's still sound, um, very sound. Um, it has it stood the test of time. And, you know, as, as models go for democracy, uh, you know, is it perfect? Uh, no, I don't believe it's perfect. But I do believe it's a very workable system that doesn't appear to have any significant, uh, you know, fundamental flaws in it. Uh, now, having said that, just the basic... You know, constitution itself, and and the type of government that we have, and the type of country that we want to be. I think that has come under assault. Uh, I think there is a an increasing polarization as to what the original founding fathers really meant, and there's tremendous disagreement taking place about what they would have envisioned as the 21st century United States of of America. In part, I mean, this is the result of, of many trends and and shifts that are taking place, but I think. One of the ones that it's important to understand and to kind of focus on is the, and I'm going to create a word here that I know does not exist, but the mediaization of American culture and politics. Mm -hmm. And this has been, you know, something that's been gradually creeping up on us. Uh, and you can see early examples of it taking place. Go back to uh, the impact that media had in the first presidential debate that was televised between Kennedy and Nixon. I mean, that was a debate where there were more people talking about how evil uh, Nixon looked and the five o'clock shadow that he was wearing, you know, than, than anything else. And I think that did serve to, you know, to change uh, the perception of, of the audience there. So fast forward to today where media has become the dominant big business. I mean, if we are an information economy, it's media and advertising and marketing that are controlling that economy right now. Individuals have, on the one hand, the, the positive ability to get a tremendous amount of information, you know, 24-7. That's also a detraction. It's a risk that is there because a lot of the information that's out there is simply not accurate. Or, you know, as we often see in the case of, of data that's being interpreted, it's lacking context. So right now, with pervasive media, uh, with the ability to be hyper-connected anywhere, every time, and the ability for anybody to grab different sound bites and snippets and digitally pull them together into what appears to be a cohesive narrative, we have an influence issue. Uh, we have a situation here where anybody with uh, a little bit of a voice can go out and they can create a story that looks reasonably true, that activates their community, that generates media views, that generates profit, that generates influence, and so the, the spiral begins there. And I think that is one of the fundamental issues that we need to address as a society. How are we going to treat information? And how are we going to hopefully put some type of a, uh, uh, of a, a code of ethics in place that says, you know, look, we are going to uh, try and do things for the greater good. But again, Howard, if we can even define what the greater good is. 
because I, I'm not sure that we have an agreement on that. Well, we, we don't absolutely look. You know, the the greatest challenge is one that's not constitutional. It's just uh, it's just been custom, and that's the two party system. Having just two parties is is at this point, you know, patently insane. Well, you know, we've we've had two parties and occasionally a third party out there, uh, you know, at various times. But we've also, even though we've had just two named parties, we've had divisions within those parties. Um, I think what's taking place right now is that extreme voices have a very uh, ready waiting platform for them to access and utilize. And I think they are, you know, kind of, you know, they're subverting what we typically would have had, you know, as sort of that uh, that moderate party that existed, you know, somewhat in the core of the Republican Party and, and the, the Democratic Party. Uh, so you get, you know, the Democrat and Republican that would see most things eye to eye, they would form that moderate base. That is uh, is losing ground, not in terms of, of belief, I think, but rather more in reaction. Because in this, in this information pervasive media age, that base is now having to compete with the polarizing views that people have on the extreme that are getting just as much voice out there that are, you know, they're they're moving faster than the political process can actually work and faster than I think the average person can actually understand what's taking place. Major thanks to our guest, Dr. Jeremy Pitt, my co-host Fred McClymans, and to you for being with us on this episode of The Coil. Please join us next week when we welcome the amazingly talented and versatile Dr. Christine Paraxlis from Johnson & Wales University. For more information on the show, check out thecoilradio.com or follow us on Twitter at thecoilradio. Archived episodes of this program may be listened to on SoundCloud. 